right, and we're going to be uh, bouncing around the first four books of the New Testament a little bit today, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so if you want to open to, I mean, really kind of the most, the most uh, prominent verse we'll keep coming back to is in Luke chapter 4. So Luke's the third book of the New Testament, about two-thirds in Dear Bible, and we'll be in Luke chapter 4. So, Bell, will you go back one slide for me, I think? Yeah, okay, yeah, perfect. And forward one slide. And the other way, right, right. And perfect. Okay, cool. All right. So if you are just dropping into a gathering of salt and light this summer, um, then you need to know that what we're doing this summer is we are walking through the entire Bible in seven weeks. Um, And so we're giving high view, 30,000 foot view of just themes that are traced through scriptures that sometimes we can miss if we're zoomed in on just a little chunk. And so we're in week five of seven. We're in kind of what we're calling act four of the truest story in the world. Um, every week there's been lots of content and we're trying to, to take the whole book of the Bible in, in seven weeks. So you can imagine there's lots of content. And so this picture is just a little bit of a reminder, uh, or for those of you who are dropping in and in the middle of the story, here's where we are and here's where we've been and here's where we are going. So the story of the Bible, the truest story in the world started with act one called creation. In the scriptures, we find this in Genesis one and two, God made everything and calls it good. That's the theme of that act that lasts for about a good page and a half of our Bibles. And then it all goes to pot from there. So uh, rebellion is act two of the truest story in the world. We call it fall sometimes. We've, Adam and Eve fell, but, but in, re, in, in reality, they, they rebelled against everything that was good in God. Um, in Genesis 3 through 11, we see the world getting worse and worse. And then in Genesis 12, God makes a promise or a covenant with, with this man, Abraham. Um, and that sets in motion the events of really the rest of the Old Testament, um, what, what our Jewish cousins would call the Hebrew Bible. The rest of the Old Testament is, is the story of God's mission going forth despite God's people. Um, and the act of that story is called promise or covenant. And then today, we, we come to this part of the story called redemption. Uh, it's in the first four, it's, it's laced throughout the scriptures, we'll see, but it's prominently in the first four books of the New Testament. Next week, we'll see most of the rest of the New Testament um, in, in what we call church, act five of the story. And then we'll finish by looking at restoration, largely out of the last book of the Bible called Revelation. So that's kind of where we are, and you're dropping into act four of this story called Redemption. Now, now week one, just to bring you up to speed on a couple, of, uh, a couple of themes, week one, we said that this story, this truest story in the world, has one main character. Kids, who's the main character in the Bible? God. There we go. The, the, the main character of this entire story, from Genesis to Revelation, and the main character in our lives, is named God. If God's the main character, that means no one else gets to be the main character. And so everyone else in this truest story is a supporting character. Everyone else is a storyteller telling God's story. In week two, though, we saw that we try to make ourselves the main character of the story. And that's what makes everything fall apart. And so before we dive in today, I'd love just to to hear, as you've seen kind of kind of creation fall into the, the promise and the covenant, what, what are some themes that if you've been here for a couple of those weeks at least, what are some themes or patterns that you've seen in weeks one through four? Maybe, maybe who is God? What has God done? What are some things you see are true of humans and what we do? So kids or adults, anything just 
kind of gut response come to mind? What have you seen to be a pattern or a theme in this story so far? Zero. Zero patterns. Yeah, people tend to look for the things of God outside of God. Yes. Do we see that in the story? If we're honest, a few of us at least know that to be true in our own hearts. Okay, good. What else? Any other themes? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. At least so far the people in the book have, have tried to make themselves the main character over and over and over. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. That happens again. No. Anything else? These are good. A, a few other themes that I thought of this week. God tells us over and over again that he is the good and right authority, and yet we consistently reject that authority. Um, God promises, this is to, to Ben's point, God promises life, and yet we seek true and full life elsewhere. Um, God created people to be a blessing. And if we're honest, sometimes people are just plain mean and kind of the opposite of what a blessing would look like. Sin pervades, society's a mess. There's just these themes over and over again. If I can, can reframe it a little bit, uh, God created us for perfect relationship first with God, okay? We're to image God's image forth. We're to obey him and worship him and cooperate with him. And yet we see throughout the story that that relationship, our relationship with God is broken. God also created us for good relationship with other people, to walk humbly and pursue unity and to care for one another. We don't have to look very far to know that that relationship is also broken. God created us with a relationship with creation with the rest of creation, to enjoy the world that he created for the time that we're in it, to steward his creation, that relationship is broken. And finally, God even created us with a relationship with, with the rest of society. He created us to be a kingdom people, citizens of a kingdom of God, creating that kingdom culture wherever we live, learn, work, and play. And, and yet we know that that relationship is also broken. Our work, our rest, our very identity, everything is broken. And that's the pattern we see over and over again. It's pretty bleak, is it not? And so today, this, this good news of this, of this next act in the story, I hope, I hope you can feel it as like tangibly actual good news. It's called redemption. And the way that, that Christians, especially in North Texas, often talk about redemption is summarized in Jesus saves souls. That's kind of how we commonly talk about it. Praise God, that is true. That is a huge part of redemption. But also, redemption is more than that. And this is what we miss out on. Jesus lived and died and rose to redeem all of the world's brokenness. In Jesus, that pattern, we were created for this and yet we're this, we were created for that and yet we're that, that pattern is reversed. On the screen, there's going to be a quote from an uh, from a author that's uh, a couple of authors that have helped shape our shared series this summer. And Mike Goheen and Craig Bartholomew say, there's a bold claim, but it's a true claim. We cannot grasp the meaning of the story of Jesus until we see 
that in fact, it is the climactic episode of this great story of the Bible, of the true story of the whole world. In Jesus, and this is where we're going to camp out, in Jesus, God's purpose is fully revealed and accomplished. In Jesus, God's purpose that we've seen unfold for seven weeks, that's the first two-thirds of our Bibles, God's purpose is fully revealed and accomplished. That's our theme today. Jesus is the climactic episode of the true story. He is the the revelation and accomplishment of God's purpose. And so we're going to see that through three lenses. First, Jesus lived to display the kingdom of God. Second, he died to conquer evil. And then he rose to redeem everything. So that's a lot. So let me pray that God would lead us. Father, would you be with us today? Would you help us by the power of your spirit, know you more deeply? And would these familiar themes not just bounce off of us in our otherwise distracted weeks, God? Would you penetrate our hearts and souls and distractions, and would you draw us by the power of your spirit closer to you? Would you be our teacher today? For your son's name and in his glory, amen. All right, so on one hand, we've seen glimpses of this pattern of redemption throughout the story already, okay? Abraham uh, was, was blessed to be a blessing. Before that, uh, Adam and Eve were clothed by God. The Old Testament sacrificial system were ways to atone for sin. God led his people out of slavery in Egypt uh, through, through what's called the Exodus. Prophets brought Israel back to God. God, we saw last week, restored Israel to their promised land after they were scattered in exile to the nations. We, we've seen glimpses of redemption. The story of God repeats over and over again. Something or someone is good, something or someone becomes bad, and something or someone wants to become good again. That we've seen over and over. But in all of the Old Testament, in all of the scriptures so far, who is it that makes that thing good again? It's always God. It's God working directly or indirectly. It's God who leads his people out of slavery into Egypt. It's God, uh, out of slavery in Egypt. It's God who, who's the one who, who clothes Adam and Eve. It's God who sends the prophets to bring Israel back to God. Over and over and over again, God, as the main character, pursues and brings his people back. And yet, over and over again, his people are prone to wander, as the hymn says. They trust idols. They hope in someone or something else. They turn to even things like reason and science and technology and the the, the nations around them to solve their problems. And frankly, they seek a good life without God. Is that true for any of us? Yet today, even? Over and over again, God invites his people, return to me, trust me, obey me. And he doesn't do it because he's mean or self-serving. He does it because he promises to bless them as they obey and trust him. Live in my story, God says, because your best story is found there too. And do we believe that today? And we know we're supposed to believe it, but do we really believe that our best story is wrapped up in trusting and obeying God and his story? So again, there's glimpses of redemption that we've seen already in this story. But on the other hand, we've not yet seen the fullness of redemption. 
the sacrifices, the, the exodus, Israel's kings, the prophets, these were all signs pointing forward, but God's purpose has not been fully revealed and accomplished in the Old Testament. Now, you need to know there's about 400 years between when our Old Testament ends and our New Testament begins. During those four centuries, there's four predominant groups that rise up into leadership in Israel, and each of them has a different view on what a, quote, faithful life of following God is. So we've got to go nerdy for a little bit. We're going to go into some history today, but it's important to know these four groups for two reasons. One, Israel's division is the stage into which Jesus comes. Second, I think as I describe these four groups to you, you'll hear echoes in their mentalities in followers of Jesus in our own divided culture today. So each of these four has their hope set in a certain type of salvation. Their hope is in something. They want a certain type of king. Okay, so here's, here's the four groups that rose up in the 400 years between the Old Testament and New Testament. The first is called the Essenes. The Essenes, their hope was in withdrawing from society. They said society is sinful, society is wrong. Our hope is to, to pull out of society and form a separate community. That's where salvation will be found. We, we still see this some today. There are followers of Jesus who, who pull out of society. The most extreme version might be folks who live on a compound together, that kind of stuff. But, but in less extreme form, these might be people who try to separate faith or scripture from any, any social issue. They'll look down on any kind of justice and say, no, 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 there's, there's no place here. We've got to pull out of that. These are folks who, as a stereotype, might watch only Jesus shows on TVs, uh, only read Christian books, only engage with Christian people. They live, whether literally or not, in kind of a proverbial compound, separate from society. Another group that arose was called the Zealots. And, and hope for the Zealots, salvation for the Zealots, was to re remove sin that existed in Israel by force. And, and what they meant by remove sin that existed in Israel is they wanted to literally remove the Roman and Gre Greek influences from their land by whatever means possible, including some pretty dark stuff like mafia movie type, okay? So today, we, we might see this echoed in, in more militant branches of what's called, at least, Christianity. Maybe folks who who look and put their hope in, in a government or a certain political figure to usher in the kingdom of God, but first, that person or that party would have to remove all the sinful party by whatever means possible. These are folks who un unbiblically tie Christianity and, and politics together, who, who rely on force. A third party is called the Sadducees. The Sadducees hope was kind of just not to rock the boat. So let, let Rome do their thing, let, let Israel do their thing, let, let other people of other beliefs do their thing. They just kind of put their heads down, live a private faith, stay quiet, don't rock the boat. That was their hope. That was their definition of salvation. My life is mine, your life is yours. This may be the most prominent mentality that we still see among followers of Jesus today. They might separate their convictions from their day-to-day -day life. And sometimes they might compromise their faith in order to, quote-unquote, keep peace. And, and some end up living kind of this watered-down version of Christianity. 
Essenes, Zealots, Sadducees, and then finally, maybe the most known group that arose during the time was called the Pharisees. Jesus talks a lot about the Pharisees, not very kindly at times. Um, and, and, and for the Pharisees, their hope was in teaching to and holding to, teaching and holding to the Old Testament law down to its very last iota, down to its very last detail. And yet their faith was very outward based. It was based on their actions only. They were very prideful in how well they followed God by their actions. Today, we're surrounded by some religious people whose, whose faith in their mind is based on doing the right thing, maybe earning God's favor, doing enough good things. And, and the scriptures and history would call these folks legalists. And so when Jesus was born, yes, there were not, not believing people in Israel, there, there were people who are far from God, just like in every nation today. But also like today, God's own people were vastly, starkly divided. And so Jesus enters this scene and Jesus enters this division and he, he doesn't side with any one of these four you know, buckets, four parties. Instead, he offers a greater king than any of them are looking for, a greater hope, a, a greater version of salvation or redemption than any of those four common views. And we'll talk about that, but, but first I want us to, to, to just take, in, take a moment and pause and go, which of those four kind of camps resonates most with you? I think all of us is pulled toward one or, or in some situations more than one of those tendencies. Is, ours, is our tendency, to, or is our pull to live separately and to, 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 to live and exist in a Christian subculture separate from the rest of society? Or, or is, is our pull a little bit more of a, a militant, government-based Christianity? Do we hide our faith from the world and just kind of keep our head down? Or do we find our satisfaction in our religion based on the amount of good that we can do because we think we're earning God's favor? You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to answer that question. But, but just like his initial appearance, Jesus has a message for each of those four parties, for each of those four camps. To, to the Essenes, he would say, God's mission is to image God into the world. To do that, you have to go into the world. You don't get to live the separate compartmentalized life. To the Zealots, he would say, there's a way to fight injustice and, and wrongness. There's a way to fight sin that is better than force. And then he models a life of love and sacrifice. To the, to the Sadducees, he would say your faith matters every day into every cultural moment, into every bit of your life. It matters. And to the Pharisees, he said over and over again, it's about your heart. You're missing the point. It's about your heart. And so to all of these, he would say, which will be on the screen, this is from Matthew chapter 5. It's a familiar verse for us, but I want you to think about it through the lenses of these different tendencies. Maybe go back this week and look about what would, what would this say to someone who's separated themselves from society? What would this say to someone who's fighting by force? You are the salt of the earth, Jesus tells his followers. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's not good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under, under people's feet. What would it look like in each of those four buckets for salt 
to lose its saltiness. And then Jesus continues, you're the light of the world. A city on its hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but rather on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they can see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What would that look like as opposed to any of those four prevailing worldviews of what it meant to be faithful to God? And so that's the world Jesus came into. And and it's important to understand that the the threads will kind of weave their way through the rest of our teaching time. That's, That's the world Jesus came into, and he refused all of those viewpoints. Rather, when Jesus came, his entire mission centered around one theme, and it's a theme that Jesus talks about over and over and over again in the Gospels. It's the theme of the kingdom of God. This is written so many times. Uh, Up on the screen will just be one example verse. Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. Everything you've been hoping for is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news, or repent and believe in the gospel. Backing up a bit, just just like so many Old Testament stories, the story of Jesus of Nazareth starts with a miraculous birth. But like so many Old Testament stories, Jesus' miracle is bigger and more miraculous than some of the others. Jesus was then raised as a faithful Jewish boy, He was affirmed by God the Father at his baptism. In those days, Mark 1 tells us, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by his cousin John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens torn open and the Spirit descended on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And then immediately... Mark continues, the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness, and he stayed in the wilderness for 40 days of solitude with God the Father. And during that solitude, Jesus was tempted by Satan, and and this temptation came as Satan invited Jesus to define his life and to define his kingdom and to define his ministry apart from God. He said, you can do this outside of what God the Father says. And he offers Jesus these three really attractive alternatives, but they're all lies, and Jesus knows they're lies. Now, I want to pause. Does that that sound familiar? Does that sound like something we've heard before in this story? When Adam and Eve were walking with God, he said, there's this one thing you can't do, but all of life is walking with me. And Satan enters the garden and says, but also you could do life in a different way. You don't have to do it the way that God says. There's an alternative here. He's doing the same thing again. To Jesus, he says, you could be, you could lead a popular revolution. You could give the people what they want and be gloried for it. You can be known as a wonder worker. You can be known as a political Messiah, the one who kicks out Rome. But Jesus did what Adam and Eve didn't do. Jesus did what Adam and Eve didn't do, and he chose, quote, the hard road of humble service. Just the hard road of humble service, self-giving love, and sacrificial suffering. 
These are some of the ways that we see Jesus as the climax of God's story. During his life, he displayed the kingdom of God. Luke 4, where I asked you to open up to, shows Jesus declaring himself to be the fulfillment of a lot of prophecy, but in this case, the prophet Isaiah. And he also shows from the prophet Isaiah what the kingdom of God will look like. So this will be on the screen as well. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus enters into a synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, as was his custom, and a scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he unrolled it. And then he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind and to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he sits back down and everybody's looking at him and he says to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus says, this is my goal. This is who I am. You, you might think of, of this passage from Isaiah as being the mission statement for Jesus' life as he walked the earth. And I want to draw us back to, to see that again, in Jesus, redemption is about the salvation of our souls, but also redemption is about more than that. If you trust Jesus, hear me on this church, if you trust Jesus, there is a great forever waiting for you. But there's also a new and better reality, a new and better kingdom, a new and better story for you every day right now. His invitation was open to everyone. And it's the same, frankly, as God the Father's invitation throughout the Old Testament. Give up your old way of life. Give up your old story. And trust me for a new and better way of life. And trust me for a new and better story. And just for the record, that invitation is still open. And is still ours today. But the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John show us some of the first people who said yes to Jesus' invitation. And he forms this, this first kingdom community as apostles and disciples and followers say yes to his invitation. And then for three years or so, Jesus displays the good news of the kingdom of God as he carries out everything that he said the kingdom of God was about in Luke 4 in that mission statement from Isaiah. He lived out a very real first layer of that mission statement. He did go and heal the blind and deaf and lepers and sick and on and on and on. He calmed the seas. He even told, he even told his disciples where they could fish and find a lot of fish. He had, he had some power over the very natural world. He fed the hungry. He proclaimed good news to the poor. He, he multiplied food out of a couple loaves and some fish. He cast out demons and restored people to spiritual health. He raised people from the dead. And along the way, as he's doing all this, as he's, as he's displaying and declaring the kingdom of God, as he's fulfilling this mission statement, along the way, he stops over and over again to just spend time with God the Father. And we see throughout Jesus' ministry 
how fully in tune he was with God the Spirit. That's the source of Jesus' power. Jesus, our Lord, had, had a unity and a submission to God the Father that Israel didn't have, that Adam and Eve didn't have, that you don't have, that I don't have, that, that no one on earth outside of Jesus has ever had. Along the way, he also taught the multitudes. Anyone who would come and listen, he would tell them stories to say what the kingdom of God was like. We call these stories parables today. Along the way, he would also train his followers to display and declare the kingdom of God in ways that were similar to how Jesus was displaying and declaring the kingdom of God. And they would be around tables, and in my mind, they're at a campfire as they wander the, the Judean wilderness after the end of a long day, and, and they're on the road, and as they're learning from and seeing and, and observing all the distinct values in Jesus's life and the distinct words he speaks and the distinct actions he lives out and the distinct way he obeys God and his love for other people, as they're observing this, as they're participating in this, this first kingdom of community embodies, if I can be frank, what a lot of our hope and prayer is for this kingdom community, for salt and light. They display in the, in, the, in the books of the Gospels what it looks like to, to truly be with Jesus as Jesus is with his Father, what it looks like to become like Jesus as they start to do the things that Jesus does. So the mission of his first followers and the mission that he gives followers today as well is really the same mission that Jesus had during his life, at least. It was displaying and declaring the good news of the kingdom of God. And along the way, Jesus welcomes sinners because there's no one else to welcome. <laughs> he welcomes sinners and outcasts and the sick and the poor and anyone who will admit, I'm broken and I'm unable and I need a better king, and I need a better salvation, and I need a better hope, and I need a better story, and I need a better life. And he welcomed anyone who would lay down their life and follow him. And yet, that's a hard decision. Those are hard words to say. They're hard words to think, much less to declare publicly. They take, they take this thing that we hate, they take sacrifice, and they take a willingness to say, I can't do it. And so finally, along the way, Jesus faced a growing opposition. So again, he challenged the Essenes' withdrawal. He challenged the Zealots' force. He challenged the Sadducees' privatized faith. He challenged the Pharisees' legalism. And over time, that opposition led to the second and third ways that Jesus is the climax of the story of God. In Jesus' death, he conquered all evil and brokenness. In his resurrection, he redeemed everything. And so I'm, I'm, I'm conflicted here, if I'm honest, because I don't want to minimize the events of Jesus' last week in Jerusalem. Many of them fulfilled other prophecies. 
at the same time, Jesus' entry to great fanfare and on a donkey into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday and His judgment of the evildoers at the temple and His Last Supper and His arrest and trial and crucifixion and His death and burial and especially His resurrection on that first Easter Sunday, those, those things are some of the well, most well-known stories in the Scriptures. And even if you're here, you know, folks who don't follow Jesus, they could likely tell you some of these stories because they've been popularized. If you, if you don't know those stories, there's plenty of, of ways to watch them on Netflix and plenty of uh, articles and that kind of stuff. And so if you'll permit me, instead of trying to recap each of those, I instead want to invite us to ask, why do they matter? Why do the events of Jesus' last week, why do his death, why do his resurrection matter? And the answer to that question starts just before Jesus starts moving with his disciples during that last journey up to Jerusalem where he's going to live his final week. He knows what's going to happen. He sets his eyes on Jerusalem. And yet before he does, he asks his followers, who do you say that I am? And they go around a little bit and say who other people say. Then Peter finally answers and says, you are the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And for us today, we can read that verse. You may be able to kind of finish the second half of that verse, as I say, the first half, because it's kind of familiar for us. But, but we miss that that statement was earth-shattering at the time. It was, it was, the, it was the, the old Western movies where someone walks through the saloon doors and the piano goes quiet and everyone just like turns and looks at the person who walked in. It was that kind of statement for Peter to say, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. To say that someone is the son of the living God is to, to admit and acknowledge that in this case, Jesus had a special and specific relationship with God the Father that was like no one else on earth. That Jesus was set apart and unique and holy and had this intimacy with God the Father such that his very DNA was embodied in the person of Jesus, the Son of the living God. Bigger than that, though, was the term Messiah. And there had been lots of folks who had attempted to be the Messiah, but what Peter's saying is, Jesus, you are the anointed one. You are the one through whom God will restore his rule and usher in his kingdom. You're the one in all of history to do that. You're the one that Israel's been waiting for through this entire first two-thirds of our Bible. That's a big statement. But while many of God's people both in Israel and still today, wanted a Messiah who was defined by some earthly version of power or might or glory. Jesus' final week matters in part because he showed Israel and he shows us what kind of kingdom God's kingdom is and what kind of king Jesus is. And he shows us what true power and might and glory looks like. And what we see in Jesus' final week is that true power and might and glory looks like self-sacrifice, 
looks like unconditional love, looks like humility, and looks like being subject to the will of God the Father, even if that means death. Even if that means death. In other words, church, what Jesus displays in his final week is the fullness of who God created every human to be. And he displays a life that Adam and Eve and no other human since Adam and Eve have ever attained. Jesus lived a perfect life. We can't fathom what that would even look like. He lived a perfect life, but rather than keeping his perfection to himself, as a good king, Jesus gave his perfection to the rest of God's imperfect creation. That is good news. But to do that, Jesus had to die. As the only perfect and sinless one, Jesus alone was worthy to stand in the place. Jesus was worthy to stand in the place of us as the fulfillment of every Old Testament sacrifice. His death was the first step in reversing this pattern of brokenness that we've seen throughout the story so far. Jesus' blood washed away all sin and all evil one time and forever. Now, now at the time, at the time that Jesus was walking the earth, Israel expected a Messiah who would lead a great battle, faithful Israel versus pagan Rome. But instead of that, at the cross, Jesus led an even greater battle against evil itself. And in his death, Jesus absorbed all the evil and all the sin and all the brokenness in all the world for all of time, for all of God's people. He attained victory through his sacrifice. And then the second step of redemption came three days after Jesus' death. And I want you to hear this. Resurrection, I'm quoting here, resurrection was a more vivid image in Jewish thought than we know today. We, we talk about res resurrection as being just a proof that God has power over death, and it's kind of a one-time thing, and that, that's what it means to us 2,000 years later. But resurrection was a vivid image in Jewish thought today. It implied the very end of one age and the renewal of the entire cosmos. That's a big deal. It's not just a guy who walks out of a grave. That would be enough, but it implied the end of one age and the renewal of the entire cosmos. The resurrection of a body was intrinsically woven together with the Jewish concept of renewed creation. That was indicative of the coming of God and his kingdom. And so the first century church proclaimed Jesus' resurrection as the ultimate good news. Most of us today, if we're honest, think of Jesus' death as the ultimate good news. For the first century church, the resurrection was the ultimate good news because they saw not just that it was a one-time event that proved that God has power. It is that. But they saw it as more than that. 
The resurrection was the start of God's plan to renew all of creation and restore all brokenness. In the resurrection, God redeemed everything. Jesus is the firstborn of new creation, but anyone who trusts God has a place in that new creation. And so it's in this that we see Jesus' mission statement from Luke 4 take on a second layer. Because there's eternal liberty for spiritual captives and oppressed. And there's best forever news to the spiritually impoverished. And there's full sight to the spiritually blind. And more than a year of God's faithfulness and favor, we get an eternity of God's approval. That's good news. So to summarize, in his death, Jesus opens the door for us and invites us to return to the kingdom of God we were designed to live in in the first place. Christ alone is the way, the truth, the life. We can only come home to life as God intended through Jesus. And in the resurrection, Jesus brings that life to bear here and now as everything broken starts to be made new. The Spirit helps us live as citizens of the kingdom of God forever, but also every day. Because Jesus prayed, God, would your kingdom come and your will be done where? Not just forever when we get to be with you, but on earth as it is in heaven. So as with every week within this Truest Story series, there's way more that we could discuss. Next week, we'll, we'll see what that life looks like in the kingdom of God as it, as it starts to blossom on earth as it is in heaven. Part of it looks like laying down our lives for God and people because Jesus first laid down his life for us. And in that, I hope you'll see that communion this, this little meal that we get to celebrate, and go ahead and grab yours if you need a, a, a little communion element package, they're back there, but, but communion, I hope you feel, is maybe especially poignant today, as we've just spent the last 40 minutes or so thinking on, dwelling on the person and work specifically of Jesus. Here's why it's poignant. For the last four weeks of the story of God, we've seen the same pattern, sin, evil, brokenness. God tries to bring us back. Sin, evil, brokenness. God tries to bring us back. That's the story we know. That's the story we live. That's the story of the world. Sin, evil, brokenness. But today we see that that pattern is reversed. Today we see the climax of a, of a better and truer story. Today in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we get a glimpse of the world as God designed it to be. In his life, Jesus displayed and declared the very kingdom of God. But church, we can only enter that story and that kingdom because of Jesus's death. And so the bread, if you want to take it, a little wafer here, represents the body of Christ broken for you and to conquer all evil and all brokenness and all sin for all the world once and for all. Take and eat. And at the same time, we can only live that better story, that kingdom of God, because of the life-changing power of his resurrection. 
And so the cup, the juice today, represents the blood of Christ, which washes you clean and guarantees a future and full redemption of everything and also guarantees that you can live thy kingdom come now. And so before we take this, I want to do a quick little exercise to wrap us up. For centuries since the resurrection, Christians across the world would greet each other by declaring the life-changing and world-changing truth as one would say, he is risen, and others would say, he is risen indeed. We do this commonly on Easter, but this is how Christians would greet each other for a lot of history and around the world. And if we believe that fact to be true, then it changes every bit of our life. And so if you believe that, would you respond as I say, he is risen, and we say together with gusto, He is risen indeed. Yes and amen. Father, thank you for Jesus' life. Thank you for Jesus' death. Thank you for Jesus' resurrection. And thank you that it does change literally everything in our lives and everything on earth. Would you draw us back into the better story and the better kingdom of your life, death, and resurrection? Spirit, would you lead us to know you more deeply, to live the resurrection life as we pursue your kingdom coming, your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. We can't do it alone. We need you for your name and your glory forever and ever. Amen. And that's it. If you have questions, if you are new and want to stick around for a little bit, then feel free to do so. But other than that, we get to leave from this place living that out by the power of his spirit. The resurrection doesn't stop as you walk out the doors. The, the resurrection matters for everything you encounter in this week. Go as a resurrection people into a dark and broken world, being the light that Jesus calls us to be. Amen?